Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest or guests to share their experiences of being a person of color in white spaces. Today's topic, international travel and living internationally. Our guests today, Christina Thompson and Dr. Michael Thomas. Christina Thompson is the Director of Partnership Development and Diversity Initiatives with the Barcelona Study Abroad Experience and co-founder of Compare Global Education Network which focuses on IDEI education and consulting. At Barcelona SAE, Christina manages university relations and the outcomes-based diversity outreach strategy. She also works with institutional partners in developing customized intercultural programming for the U.S. and in Barcelona, Spain. A published and contributing author on topics of international education, diversity, equity, inclusion, and intercultural learning. Christina also serves as a mentor for NAFSA and regularly presents at WISE, NAFSA, Diversity Abroad, and FORM. Christina received her master's degree with a concentration in global studies from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. She has worked for 15 years in the field of international education. Prior to her current role, Christina was the Director of Global Opportunities at Susquehanna University and the International Programs Coordinator at UNC Greensboro and the UNC Exchange Program. She is instructed in the cultural and reflection courses and have led students groups on domestic and abroad trips, including New Orleans, Louisiana, London, England, Macau, China, Cyprus, and the Gambia of West Africa. Dr. Michael Thomas is a Humboldt Foundation Research Fellow at the JFK Institute for North America Studies in Berlin, Germany. Although he is primarily trained in philosophy, his work takes an interdisciplinary approach to social cultural questions, drawing on the social sciences, art, and literature. His current research projects include working on the implications of A.N. Whitehead's philosophy of experience on our understanding of social life in papers, developing an account of blackness as a form of experience through the work in the philosophy of race, African-American social thought, literature, and rap music. Dr. Thomas received his doctorate of philosophy in philosophy from the University of Chicago, his master's degree from Northern Illinois University and his bachelor's at Northwestern State University. Daughters, please welcome our guest daughters to the podcast, Christina Thompson and Dr. Michael Thomas. So let's let's just start. Um, let's just get into it. Tell our audience a little bit about um, how you how you came to international travel and living internationally. Go ahead, Christina. Why don't you start? Okay, sure. Um, so uh, my kind of traveling started. Um, when I, um, when my older sister moved to Ireland uh, when I was much younger and she, um, you know, was encouraging me to visit her. And so after I finished junior college, I decided, you know, what I wanted for graduation was a one-way ticket to Ireland um, and to travel, to reconnect with her, to meet her. And so I spent time on her farm for almost eight months, um, learned about horses and, and all the other animals. And so that was really uh, interesting for me. We also traveled a lot um, all over the UK and, and different parts of Europe. 
Um, so I did that and came back to the States and applied for college to kind of get some of a gap year between my uh, community college experience and, and saw an ad in the newspaper for a work-study student. Um, I was you know, first-generation college student, didn't have a whole lot of money and really needed a job. Didn't know about study abroad, but this looks interesting because you know, you know, I spent some time in Ireland. So after I got that position, um, it really opened my eyes up to what's possible. You know, that study abroad is, you know, really interesting cultural, um, I think, uh, it, I would even go further and say it's a really important and essential part of any higher education experience. But it also taught me a lot about myself and what I really wanted to do as a career. So from that point on, um, I, you know, I, I worked in the international office, went to grad school in Germany, in Mannheim, Germany, um, and uh, studied abroad there. And then for the last 16 years, I've been working in higher education. Um, you know, anywhere from a study abroad director of an office, um, you know, um, teaching classes in intercultural communication, taking students abroad, and then now I'm working for a, sp a company in Barcelona, Spain, where I um, oversee their partnerships and diversity, equity, and inclusion, but in a global context. Thank you for that. What about you, Michael? Mm -hmm. uh, so my first experience was when I was in grad school. Um, I was finishing up my dissertation at the University of Chicago. And there was an opportunity to study at Sciences Po in France. Uh, and I was interested in it because I was working on a chapter on this philosopher, Bruno Latour, who taught there. But it was one of those things to where, and I talk about this with another grad student who's there now. We don't know to take those opportunities and that it's there for us too. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So I was telling a friend of mine about it and he pushed me to do it. He said, you know, we've been sitting, we hang around every week. I've been, we've been listening to French radio. We watch French rugby all the time. We've been eating these like Spanish style breakfasts he's been doing. We've been cooking quiche. So he's like, you've really been training to do this between, you know, the language and all the cultural stuff. So learn some French, you know, make your application and go. Um, and I got the opportunity and it was great. So I spent six months in Paris the first time um, studying at Sciences Po, doing research because the University of Chicago had a little center there where I could go and have a little office and go work and kind of feel grown. <laughs> it was that was really cool. Uh, I didn't know they had so many holidays, so I would show up on holidays that I didn't know they had, and the thing would be closed because everybody was at home. Um, and I had really supportive people on my dissertation committee who would set me up with conferences and talks around. So I got to travel to the Czech Republic, travel to Germany. I did a workshop in London. So that was a really cool first experience, and I feel like I kind of got the bug. Mm. Um, so from there, there was uh, some people from an institute I met at one of those conferences that had a fellowship open, um, and I got that. So then I studied um, and researched in Hanover in Germany for a year, uh, which was super nice. Um, and after that, I met during the first trip, my wife, my now wife at that time, my girlfriend there. So I spent a year just kind of living in Paris, um, teaching English for like $20 an hour once a week to have some coffee money. Um, and I was able to kind of sit in on classes there too. So it was a really cool experience to have been kind of educated in the USS one environment, but I got to see all these different research and academic environments in Europe. Um, so at that point in time too, I'd had in my mind, it would be really cool to teach in both places. Cause my chair did that. He would teach in Chicago for a quarter and then he'd spend the rest of the year with his family in Europe, which was really cool. Wow. Um, so that's something I still think about, but I think it's harder nowadays, um, and I'd have to have a lot more publications. But that's kind of that's that's kind of kept me moving, even when I was at SU. Every summer, I would come over here and do some kind of research in Europe, just because I think I really do enjoy seeing how my perspective changed jumping through all these different places. 
So what did your family say about um, both of you? I know are first generation and from small uh, southern towns, if you will. And I'm wondering, um, because, you know, travel for us is to the Dominican Republic or the Bahamas. And that's big time sometimes. And so wondering uh, what your family's reaction was. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, initially the first trip that I took, was, which was to Ireland, you know, me going to see a family member, I think that they were okay with that. Um, they're, you know, it, it, they knew that I was safe and I was going to be with someone that they knew. Um, but when I wanted, to, when I decided to go to grad school and study right in Germany for grad school um, on my own, uh, there was a, a lot of, uh, you know, fear. And um, you know, my mom had my grandmother sit me down and say, "Don't take this trip. You know, they don't like black people there. Don't you know, like that, the history of Germany. You know, don't you know that." Um, you know, you could be kidnapped. You know, and she just kept going on and on. So when when your when your family pulls in Big Mama to the conversation, they pulling in the big. Yes, things. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they thought after that I was going to probably cancel my trip. But I told my grandma, you know, look, I really need this. This is something that I wanted to do. You know, I explained to her that I was working in the study abroad office because you know I think what was unique about my own personal experience is that I already had been in the study abroad office and um, I couldn't afford to go abroad. You know, I was you know a poor college student in every sense of the word. I, I couldn't afford it in undergrad, so I just had to, I, I found an opportunity to do some research in Germany and get some funding, and that was just really important to me. So I went ahead and did it without a lot of parent, you know, support. Um, and, um, and I, but I, you know, I think that over time, they kind of had more respect for me, but we can get into that later. But I think that that was a really big part of, you know, kind of creating the, even my own fear, you know, feeding into that, you know, when I was getting ready to leave for Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Michael? Yeah. Um, so I remember when I told my folks, uh, I remember my mom asking me, you know, are you going to be safe over there? And when we're having the conversation now, I think about it. And I was like, well, I responded. I was like, no, I'll be fine. Like I lived in Chicago, I lived in Philadelphia. I've been all over all these places. I'm going to be okay. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Um, and I think that's something that even in my traveling, thinking about being black in that space was something different because I remember too, when I was in France before they, they would identify me as black American, which means something different um, that I'm still teasing out. Um, but that was the big concern at first was, you know, me showing up and being safe over there. And I think the harder part was then me getting comfortable and kind of keeping familiar relationship at home. Cause mm-hmm. I had like, there was a French guy I knew there from college who I knew and I would meet people through school, but like, I didn't really have a social circle or a community there. Um, so I think that was probably sort of the hardest part is that's from all the movement I'd done in the U S that was the first time where you could really kind of feel isolated and kind of have to think again about where to get that community from. And that that certainly is an important piece. So I'm struck by the fact that both of you have spent time in Germany. And Michael, that you were there currently, but certainly Christina, uh, Christina, that you have spent um, some intense time there as well. And we know that Germany has its own wretched history with xenophobia and anti-Semitism and a bunch of other really horrible things. Not to say that our own country doesn't have those issues, but right now we're talking about being black internationally. And I'm wondering if you could speak to what it was like for you, particularly in Germany, or what it's been like for you um, in this time, Michael, to be in that country at this moment in time. It's been interesting. I think I've been shielded from a lot because of COVID. So we don't mm-hmm. circulate around as much. And I don't have as mm-hmm. much office life. Um, but 
where I think I start to see it is in actually interacting with uh, black folks around here in activist circles. Um, so that's because mm. one of the things that's kept going is there's not a lot of Black Lives Matter George Floyd protests going on, but they've already had their own issues with the treatment of black migrants over here in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And they've been having their own conversations and they're keeping them going about police violence over here. Um, so it's, I think this trip is the one where I've been most aware walking around of how similar the situation is to home. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been learning a lot. I have a good friend here who's a brother from Arkansas, who's a opera singer who works for uh, Deutsche Welle. And sort of when I come over here, I have a kind of academic passport, a fellowship. So most of my dealings with immigration and like the German bureaucracy, which is their big, big thing, is fairly smooth. But then, you know, talk to somebody who's had to come through it, kind of making their own way without those credentials. You get to hear a lot about the things my buddy has to be dealing with. And there's a lot of profiling. Um, there's a lot of hiding behind the legal system and a lot of colorblind racism that goes on that like a lot of folks still aren't really to discuss. So it's it's one of those things now where now when we do have these online meetings or before, hopefully we can see each other in person again. I'm already a little edgy about, all right, so how am I going to deal with these folks when I'm going to get in? Because this is an entirely different culture of whiteness that I haven't really dealt with that way before. Sure, sure. What about you, Christina? Yeah, so, you know, I went to Germany pre-COVID, um, and I think uh, for me, it was just important for me to find community. I um, One of the things I really missed and felt very isolated in is uh, not, you know, being able to have my church family or uh, not being able to really know simple things like where to get my hair done. Um, so it was just a real struggle, I think, to find that community. and. You know, again, not running up and hugging the first black person that I saw on the street, um, like, hey, how you doing? You know, and um, one thing you uh, notice, uh, you can tell the difference, and it's, I don't know how we can do this, but I agree, we can tell the difference between who's African American, who's African. You can pick them out of a crowd. I think it's a certain walk or flair that we have. You can pick out the people that you know mm-hmm. are African American. And so when I would see them, a lot of them were military guys or people I would, um, you know, automatically, you know, connect and we would have kind of do a secret nod or, you know, we would talk to each other non-verbally, but also you know, some, sometimes we would actually have a conversation. So I think, though, from a point of view of, you know, I felt somewhat invisible. Uh, and I felt mm-hmm. this in other countries, too, outside of Germany. Uh, Michael, you mentioned colorblindness. I think that's probably where it comes from. You know, that uh, people see me, uh, for the most part, I felt like most people saw me as an African. Um, some people would recognize, you know, maybe after hearing me speak that I'm American, but for the most part, I felt more African uh, abroad, and it really pushed me to to learn more about my heritage, and and it pushed me in that direction so that I could also find community. Um, so I, I think that was one thing that I felt. And then another thing is I did have some incidents of racism. Um, it was more around, um, you know, uh, it's in certain places I've been. I'll speak, you know, about Germany, but. Also in other places, like you know, when I was in Poland or mm-hmm. Serbia, I felt like folks just didn't know who I was, and so I would constantly be followed. I would constantly be, um, uh, I would say, kind of stared at. Um, it's not racist, but it's more of, of just being the center of attention constantly, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out what people are thinking about you. So that can be pretty isolating, I think, altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, you know, I think once people got to know me, they, they were open to mm-hmm. who I was. Um, and some people even said, you know, I didn't know who you were, but after I got to know you, I said, that sounds like America, <laughs> you know? They make a lot of it assumptions does. about you. They said, you're pretty <laughs> nice, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so I think that that was just, you know, it, it, it was a real, um, it was a real, sol- kind of a, 
uh, 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 I would say an experience of solitude in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Michael, how much of this resonates for you, this kind of being stared at or looked at differently in other places outside of um, Germany? Mm, that tracks. And this, I think one of the interesting things too, like an incident immediately popped into my mind of like, there'd be, it was little stuff. Like if there was like one bakery I would go to all the time and they're already real particular about the language anyway in France, but this one would correct my, correct my pronunciation every time I went into the order, even though I ordered the same thing. Um, but the people who I think were most kind of blatant about it, like the incident that sticks out was I went to an Indian restaurant one time and this guy for real almost like fussed at me and kicked me out of the restaurant because I didn't articulate myself in the right way. Um, Hmm. So that's been the sort of thing that's kind of happened there. Um, I think what's interesting, I'm thinking about the discussion of Germany and I'm really curious to what happens when we start to rotate again, because I've also noticed the way the colorism works. When Christina says she appears as African, uh, when folks are seeing me on the street, they've asked me if I'm Arab. Um, so they assume I'm Turkish or North African or Middle mm-hmm, Eastern because I'm mm-hmm. lighter skinned. Um, sure. So that's been a kind of interesting thing to deal with. But I think that's what that's the kind of isolating part is it feels like sort of you show up here, you're used to being black in America. So that once you end up in Europe, however their cultural matrix works, like that's where they're trying to pick out where you go rather than mm-hmm. thinking you could have been somewhere else. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, there's a lot of energy right now around this movement of Blacksit. Blacksit, meaning black people exiting um, the country. Uh, Stevie Wonder announced this week that he is moving to Ghana because he is sick of racism in this country. And, you know, certainly there are historical folks, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Nina Simone, Josephine Baker, most deaf, um, in more contemporary terms that were like, I'm out. Um, and um, one of the things that sticks out for, for me is uh, with, my, with my husband that, um, that he is very clear about retiring internationally and that that's his desire. And he oftentimes references our trip to Paris and how less of a weight it felt like to him to be a black man in that arena. And so what you were just talking about is some of the challenges, but I'm wondering if you might be able to respond to this notion of um, black sick. I mean, even Ghana has gotten in, like, come on home, just forget them people, just come on yeah. home, um, has been a recent, um, I mean, that's, it. That they, of course, say much more complicated than I just mm-hmm. did, um, but yeah, but that's basically the message. So what, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think uh, there are challenges, but I will say one thing for myself personally that I felt when I went abroad, and particularly when I went to the Gambia in West Africa, that was a different experience. For the first time when I stepped off the plane, no one looked at me as a black person. They just looked at me as a person. Now, I did look different mm. from some of the folks there, I was maybe dressed differently, but it was a, almost like, I felt almost like I was coming home. I know it sounds cliche, but mm. <laughs> it felt that way. And, and just walking around, people were welcoming me to the Gambia. You know, they were like, welcome home. And I just felt like this is the place I wanna come back to. Now, from a European perspective, and I've also spent some time in Eastern Europe and a um, little, little bit in the Middle East, I felt um, there what's different is I almost had an opportunity to create my own narrative. 
in the United States, I feel like I'm in a box. People say you, your, your, your people were slaves. You know, you have, you live a very oppressed existence. However, abroad, there was a lack of knowledge that I used to my benefit, I felt. I felt like, okay, this, I want to tell you about me, but I want to tell you who I really am. And because of maybe their lack of knowledge, there was an opportunity to do that. And I think that's really appealing to a lot of folks when they go abroad for the first time. They feel like this is a place where, yes, maybe there is some challenges or but I do believe those challenges are rooted in a lot of ignorance. And so you can use that as a, as a point of education. And uh, so the friends of mine, you know, I had a friend recently who, who decided to move to Brazil. And, um, you know, she just said that she just felt like that's where she could be herself. So I, I, that's a trend uh, that I'm hearing, uh, too. But I'm, I'm curious about what Michael thinks. Is you're abroad right now. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because I think that, I'm sorry, just, mm -hmm. just if I could poke mm -hmm. in, everything that I read in... in um, in preparation for our time together, particularly about expats, that's a really common narrative that people feel like they can kind of let their hair down and just be themselves and not feel fear of being killed or whatever the case might be. Go ahead, Dr. Thomas. What were you going to say? Yeah. No, I'll say that, de that decompression is super real. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out where that comes from because knowing now kind of how we fit in here, it feels like it shouldn't be that way, but I think for Americans abroad, Black Americans abroad, it kind of is. Like there is this kind of space to introduce yourself as who you want to be seen as, rather than kind of be seen that way. Um, and I like Christina's point about this coming from a place of ignorance, because I think especially in at least in the French context, when they know you're American, they're really excited that you're there, because that means you left the bad racist American people. And I think that's the narrative too of us going over there, because that's a lot of folks. Like when Richard Wright left, when Baldwin left, like they found the environment so welcoming. I think that was a part of it. Um, and I think there might, there's somebody has to written a paper on this, but there's probably a lot to say about the fact that when we showed up, we were either soldiers or writers or entertainers or somebody who has some reputation in the society. Uh, so that's the joke, uh, the joke I tell folks is like, I think they assume that not only did you escape the rich white people, but you did something to do it. So they want to know, you know, what was the talent that got you out of that place? Um, but that's so I think it makes it really welcoming. And I, the weird flip side of that, too, is I ended up defending America more than I thought I would, because uh, then they like to talk about, you know, what's so great about France. And there's a lot that's really great about France, but then they don't want to talk about or acknowledge mm -hmm. the stuff that goes wrong mm -hmm. there, too. Um, and that's a lot of what they're still doing is a lot of that comes from if they can point to how bad America is, then they don't have to mm -hmm. face up to when they mess up. So have either of you been abroad at the time of a watershed moment, 9-11 or um, certainly the George Floyd civil unrest um, and the murder, um, those kinds of things? Have, have either of you been abroad when things like that were going on and how was that being processed and how were you being processed in light of it? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what was I came home in time for Trump, which might have been a mistake. <laughs> um, but then I was back into I was, how was how was Trump processed hmm? abroad? Well, that's what was it was interesting. I feel like dealing with pre-Trump in Europe and then getting back to America for the election, I was I was kind of shocked because I expected the Europeans to be like, "There's no way they're gonna make that man president." But I didn't think the Americans really believed that. Um, because for them, it was just sort of, it was both weird and a chance to make fun of the weird Americans again. Because, mm -hmm. of course, this crazy cowboy person thinks he can be president, but it's so uncouth and it's so unmannered. 
Um, of course, y'all have to vote for this woman. Um, so that was like, so we got back in August, right before the election. And I'd already spent three months being like, yeah, I don't know. This crazy person might be president of the United States in a few months. So we need to not be so confident about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I left this time, it was during the pandemic. And like the week after we got to France was the George Floyd murder. Um, so that was that was hard. Because uh, I had already left feeling like I left y'all at SU. We're going to have to teach in the middle of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had been watching what was happening to the black community in the United States. And it's everything we talk about that's wrong with the country. Um, so I kind of left the one thing that I felt like I was doing in the community. And I was just sitting somewhere kind of safe, chilling. Because even the mm-hmm. pandemic wasn't bad at that point. Um mm-hmm. So I think that's why it ended up hitting me harder than a lot of the a lot of the other ones have because like everything's affected me. But when something like when we find out that uh, George Zimmerman is not going to be convicted of killing Trayvon, like that's something I expect. I'm kind of cynical about a lot of it. So that this was a moment where kind of that wall was gone, and I had to do a mm. lot of grief and processing for mm-hmm. weeks during that. Yeah. What about you, Christina? Yeah, I was trying to think back, and you know, when I was in Germany, it was around 2011, 12. So President Obama had just been, was in office, and we had our first black president, and I think uh, people wanted to talk to me about it. So people always want to say, well, what do you think of Obama? You know, and so, uh, you know, I've always been told by people who are well-traveled or to avoid getting into political conversations abroad. (laughs) They can go down a, a rabbit hole, but I just felt like people were, really wanted to hear from me, like, now that you have your first black president, how do you feel about that? And I got caught up into a lot of conversations around that. Um, and I feel, you know, I think that that um, was a point of pride for me. So I was very open to talking about it. I think there also was, so we had some shared excitement. I think there was some, almost like a, at that time, I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen then, but at that time we felt that there was a shift in the race, you know, in the kind of topics around race in the United States, especially. Uh, it was kind of a moment of hope, and um, everybody was celebrating. It was clearly that this wasn't just, you know, like something that the black community was celebrating or those who supported uh, Obama's uh, presidency. Others were also a part of that. So what do you know now about what it means to live and to travel internationally that you would like to share with our listeners um, from your wisdom? Hmm. I would, one thing, because I talk to students about this a lot, um, and I would say one of the things that um, is clear to me now is that fear that I think a lot of black students have about leaving the United States, it's a real fear. Um, and I think that what Black Lives Matter did last summer is it said, yep, what you was thinking about, it's true. Now, there's a lot of races around the world, specifically global anti-blackness that needs to be addressed because protests weren't just in the United States. They were happening in Spain, where I work. They were happening in, with my friends who were in Hong Kong. So, so I think that what it did almost is it peeled back the layer that I think of that fear, the unknown fear, the fear of the unknown that a lot of students talk about and said, mm-hmm. yes, you're going to be up against. And I think in a way it kind of um, may have helped to start a conversation and discussion about, okay, now that we know that's there, how can we work together to, so you can have this experience? You shouldn't let this hold you back. You're dealing with this every day in the United States. These are the ways that you can deal with it abroad. And I think that that's one thing that I've, I've noticed, just a shift in conversation with, 
with students and with my friends that travel uh, more. And I'm hoping what it will do is, is, to, um, is to kind of define that fear and put it in perspective. And so we can, we can have those experiences. Because again, as you mentioned, you know, this huge black travel movement has really um, uh, started to, to, to trend and uh, new travel businesses are popping up now and folks are really trying to have more intercultural experiences. Uh, we, we mentioned, you know, going to the Caribbean or maybe going to a resort, but those are very, I would say, surface level experiences. You know, folks are more interested in staying with a local family or, you know, maybe getting off the tourist uh, circuit a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. What about you, Michael? I kind of agree and want to build off of what Christina said, because a lot of what the traveling has done over time is it's given me a focus on global blackness and global anti-blackness. Mm. Um, so that's mm -hmm. those last couple summers when I was coming over for research, it was going and kind of meeting people who were doing black history in France and who were doing black history in the Netherlands. And like your whole experience of that place changes because they're telling you, you know, so these factory buildings that are marked here, you notice whose faces those are. These are the folks who were in the colonies, in the museum. This is where the art comes from. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I felt like that was both, it makes an environment that was already, you might've been a little queasy scarier. Um, but I think also that gave me some good perspective to know like, so this is a new environment, but you know that this is present and you've, have a clearer perspective of where you are and what you're doing. Um, and at least for this trip, that's been motivating for me to say, so not only do you need these experiences and to get over the fear of leaving, but also if we're going to do anything, we probably need to talk to our other black folks. Um, and that, so that kind of pan-African solidarity idea is becoming more and more important. So, so can you, you so you both have spoke of anti-black, global anti-blackness. Can you unpack what that is and how that may look mm -hmm. and how that's the same and or different than the states mm. um you know i i so actually it's it's a timely question because I'm, I'm doing a talk on this on friday <laughs> so okay. um so what i what i've been thinking about and when i'm thinking about a global anti-blackness is um i believe that it's rooted in the uh american kind of systemic racist system in a way. And in many ways, now that I'm doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work internationally, like in Spain and mm -hmm. another country, um, what I found is people look to the U.S. as the gold standard. Okay, what is the U.S. doing for this? How are we addressing this? And so it's been really interesting thinking about it in that perspective and thinking back in history and, you know, when, uh, you know, the transatlantic uh, slave trade first came well, when they first started uh, trading African slaves um, in the 15th century, I believe, they, they would have um, started to, you know, after seeing the, the I guess, the, the monetary growth and wealth that came from that, um, there was a, a very concerted effort to keep these people in their place. And so that route of, you know, the mother being a slave, the child being a slave, and slavery being an inherited status kind of perpetuated and led into, you know, you know, the discrimination that followed with voting rights and the Reconstruction Act, um, the uh, Jim Crow laws that then followed there forth. And so, and then, you know, it, it kind of set the perfect, I don't know, the, almost the perfect setting for uh, white supremacy to rise and for black oppression to become the standard. And so in that- And that's, and that's globally that's is what you're global. saying. That white, 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 white suppression 
if you if the US is the gold standard mm-hmm. from what you say Christina then um and if white supremacy is king mm-hmm. in the US mm-hmm. that then that is how the world will function because they will oftentimes be following our lead yeah. whether that be overt mm-hmm. or covert they mm-hmm. may not have had enslaved africans mm-hmm. in the country mm-hmm. But still, there's stuff. Yeah, and you know, me and, and different you know historian friends of mine, academics, we argue about this because you know this you know history is I always say is it's, it's, it's you know it is based on your lens. You know, whenever you talk about history, you talk about it with your lens, kind of clouding your view or impacting mm-hmm. your view. And I think you know uh, slavery is nothing new. It has existed in many forms. There have been wars and rumors of wars throughout the years, back to you know in the Bible in exactly. The Bible. So 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 I wouldn't say it's necessarily slavery, but it's the um, the use, the the enslavement of Black Africans, that then the U.S. you know kind of set the standard for. It. This is how you treat people that you want to keep in their place, and and that standard mm-hmm. then perpetuated itself even after long after Spain had banned slavery. You know the U.K. Uh, they still my friends, you know my Black British friends, my Afro Spaniard friends talk about the same narrative about oppression, about not being able to you know uh, fully take advantage of uh, of, of anywhere from home ownership to finding the right job. I mean, it's just a narrative that I hear wow. so commonly uh, throughout. And mm-hmm. and also on the continent of Africa as well, um, where the colonialism impacted mm-hmm. and that standard also sure. was perpetuated sure. by Europe, the United States, and and that's how it kind of went. So to me, that's the kind of the, the foundation of it. And so in order to do that, I do believe the U.S. has some, some sway in it, but it, there's been so much harm and damage done um, it's going to take a global, a global community coming together to address it. Um, mm. Wow. No, definitely. So what do you think about the global anti-blackness or xenophobia, white supremacy? It's, it's baked into the culture here. Um, and there was like, I had a moment on my first trip when I was like walking around Vienna or something one day. And it was like, it's the architecture was really imperial. And I was like, man, empire is beautiful. And like, I didn't catch what I said for a second. And then I thought about it. And it's the more and more you go to these places, all of the wealth and what allowed them to thrive was primarily what they pulled from the African slave trade. Like that was also global capital expansion um, from the Europe, from taking these ships from Europe and using them as trade vessels to take those folks to the U.S. Um, and so as they're doing that process, and this has been a big deal in philosophy, a lot of the folks that we sort of read as the standard canons are the ones who are kind of setting this ideology of, so there is actually a hierarchy of people. And these black folks were enslaving can be enslaved because they don't have the intelligence to guide themselves. They don't create culture. There's nothing that they can do. Um, so I think what's interesting is I think the U.S. becomes the gold standard and it becomes the way that a lot of the countries on this side distance themselves but they had a hand in making that as well. Uh, the founding sure. fathers were over here meeting with the French and meeting with the Germans and hanging out with the Dutch to figure out the principles of the country. So that's one of the things too, yeah. is like, that was, this really was, it's not a, you hear people talk about, and this sounds like a global conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy. It's the people who had the money at the power and the time got together and established this hierarchy that's and right. we're still suffering that's from right. that. So I, I can remember um, in, on the Champs Elysees that there is an apartment where Thomas Thomas Jefferson frequently mm-hmm. visited with Sally Hemings, mm-hmm. and that and, and so that speaks to me that look, what was he 
what were they doing over here? Like, what would they, what, they had residents? And, I mean, to the point that Sally Hemis was like, I'm not going back. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but that you were right that the founding fathers were kind of brokering this mindset. Um, I mean, and I think not just to, to have African enslaved people in other places, but also for the world to tolerate it from us. Mm-hmm. And for them sense. to let themselves do the trading. Because that's at least like yes. the philosophers I'm citing in the UK, for example, were working for the East and West India Trade Company. So they were the ones who right. were right. signing the slips on the ships and also giving the justification mm-hmm. for exploiting mm-hmm. those folks. Um, right. So that's so there's a weird way in which we're kind of setting up the practices, but they're giving us codes. <laughs> so how do you think that that plays out today then? Mm-hmm. In this global anti-blackness, xenophobia, white supremacy. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you know, Michael, you, you know, you said something earlier about um, how, you know, in France, when you, when you went there, okay, yes, you left the U.S., the bad racist place. I think that, that um, once certain, I do believe that um, Europe, and some, I guess I'll make sure I'm presenting it right, yeah, I believe, some countries in Europe did ban and abolish slavery before the U.S., for sure. We know that, but so I think Absolutely. that they started Absolutely. to see that this is not really a good, this, this, look at the damage that we've done, and there were some in power at the time that were interested in trying to find ways to kind of roll that back a little bit. And I think that what I've seen in, in Europe, mm-hmm. from my experience, is that I, I see that same kind of mindset as, Yes, we did something back then, but we want to move forward uh, now, and we don't want we don't want to talk about race, and and it, and when you when they say that, then it kind of creates a whole nother problem. Like, uh, then there's colorblindness, and then you're still dealing with a lot of these systemic issues, uh, global anti-blackness in many ways, and and but people aren't acknowledging it. So when I went go when I can talk about you know the isolation I felt. Yes, I mean I felt. Free, I felt like I could revalidate and, and kind of reinvent myself in a way. But at the same time, uh, my experiences weren't being validated by people because they, they wanted to walk away from that. Well, and that's what the minimization of racism mm-hmm. does. The notion of we're all alike, we're similar, let's focus on the things that we're similar about and not so much on the differences. Focusing on the differences is so divisive. Like that whole narrative really is almost uh, whitewashing mm-hmm. of the experiences that people of color are, happen, are having. And it's it's a really wonderful kind of defense mechanism because it sounds quite benevolent, right, or mm-hmm. altruistic. But really, it's you are uncomfortable, and so mm-hmm. you need me to shut up. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's it. And that's, and that's how I think the U.S. kind of gets used as a way of, they can say it's not as bad here as it is there, so y'all can chill out. Like, it's not like that. Um, but if you look globally, like, and if we look at what's happening right now, Haiti was the was the one country to go ahead and say, we're not going to wait for you to abolish slavery. We're going to have a revolution like, like, and we're, we're going to free gonna, ourselves. Yeah, like we're just going to yeah. kill And them. they're still we're suffering good. for yeah. it today. Um, yes, that's right. That's and right. we've stopped exporting slaves from Africa, but we're still, at least these countries are still using them to mine resources. France still has control of the currency over its country. So there's this benevolence if we stopped this kind of overt badness and we've brought you in economically, but you still have this second class status in all of these nations. Right. 
Well, and that's where it's a system. Yeah. So I ask every single guest this question, and I would be anxious to hear both of your responses to it. What's the one thing that you want white people to know? If you could tell white people one thing about how to be more inclusive, how to create a a global space that's inclusive, how to decrease global anti-racism, xenophobia, and white supremacy, what would you say? Good question. (laughs) I think for me, um, one of the things that I think is sometimes hard because a lot of my audiences are white. When I do diversity, equity, inclusion trainings, I'm, I'm, I'm usually talking to a predominantly white audience. And, and, and so a lot of times what I see is they'll do the training, they'll be super excited about it, they'll read the recommended book, and then they go back to the regular life. What I want them to know is I'm still black. I'm black during the training, I'm black after the training, and I'm black every day. So I deal with this every day. So what you have to realize is that you even come into my training, you're coming in a place of privilege. I have to continue. I am black every day. And so I sometimes say that and they always say, why is she telling me this? But I think sometimes it might resonate with some folks to know that this isn't just a one time or an experience that I can cut off. And I think that's what. Or choose how you do it, do it, choose how you how much you want to engage. I don't think I'll choose to not be so black today. Yeah, yeah, I don't (laughs) want to be so black today. You know, it's always, it's every day. And you know, I think that that is uh, one of the things that's just hard to get across sometimes. And and, and I think that, um, you know, um, I've started to hear people that I've had trainings with now saying, well, some people can't cut this off. You know, and I'm like, thank you. You know, finally kind of breaking through a little bit. It's working. So, so, so I hope that that is something that they, they can realize. And whether it's any marginalized community, any community um, uh, underrepresented or oppressed, marginalized, that they can't cut it off. And, um, you know, it's, 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 this is how, this is us, this is our lives. And, um, you know, if they take it as seriously as we do, I'm sure all of us here on the call and any person you know, can take themselves and, and take their lives seriously. They can see that, you know, this is something that we really need to address. It's it's something that's important. And I always say it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. So, yeah. It's that's absolutely the right thing to do. Kind of my thinking. Mm-hmm. Dr. Thomas? I'm thinking. I'm trying not to be petty. The question always makes You me can be petty. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm listening to Christina and haven't had a lot of the similar, a lot of similar experiences there's all these phrases I want to say because so they sticks in people's heads and it's like so I'm not saying it's your fault but I'm saying you have some work to do um because I feel like that's the people even who do some of these trainings and take them seriously they'll feel bad about it they'll maybe want to distance themselves from the feeling or that'll be their response is like they'll just defer rather than come up with some kind of a positive action and it feels like especially when we're talking about this global anti-blackness question what we're asking people to do is look around and see the situation that folks are in on a day-to-day basis and say, so now what do I do to help ameliorate this situation? That's right. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not my fault, like Mm -hmm. you might've not have been the person who enslaved people, Mm -hmm. but you were in a social position in which this many people just systematically meaning without it being anyone's direct Mm -hmm. input in some cases are going to be poor and broke. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to get people to do to make sure these folks aren't poor and broke? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do to make sure they have health care? And like that needs to Mm -hmm. be the push. This whole like everybody wants to wait and defer and be sorry. And I don't think we got time for them to be sorry no more. Mm -hmm. No, let's keep it moving. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what's the one piece of advice that you want to give, um, give our listeners 
And so that's black and brown folk, mostly. Not all the time, but that... I mean, we have a pretty good uh, listening audience of white people as well, per our data, which is good. Um, what do you want them to know about travel and living internationally? What would be your parting advice? It's so hard to pick up one, just one thing. Well, <laughs> I think for do, me, you I can do more than one. Um, you can do more than um, one. You know, I, I think, you know, if I can speak specifically to to black and brown people um, who are thinking about maybe, uh, you know, engaging in an international experience, you know, especially now, because we do obviously have a, a pandemic and mm -hmm. we have a lot of barriers, I think, that will maybe uh, limit travel in the near future. Hopefully we'll come back. But I think it's just important to, um, to um, plan ahead, do your research, and, but most of all, um, you know, find a way past the fear. Um, and, you know, there's a whole community of us out here, I mean, um, in so many different groups and uh, travel groups and associations that uh, will be happy to uh, guide and mentor. And, we, we, you know, I would say, you know, part of that finding resources is finding community so that you can have, um, you know, a different experience than I had. I, I think, you know, there are, you know, more resources out there even when I went abroad, most likely. Um, so, you know, that would be one thing. And then the other thing, you know, I would say is, uh, you know, there is so much value in cultural education and cultural intelligence. And as black people, we are full of culture and, uh, but there's a lot more culture that we can learn. Um, and I, I think I felt that, especially my first time stepping foot on the African continent, of so many things I just didn't know. And mm -hmm. I learned so much that I brought back and um, educated my family on. And so, um, you know, while we are, you know, have a very diverse and robust culture amongst ourselves, uh, there's so much more that we can learn um, uh, in anywhere, but I'm using Africa as, a, as an example because I felt like that probably was one of my most groundbreaking experiences. Mm. Um, you know, and then, you know, I think, you know, it, it's, it's really something that I think everyone should be able to experience. And so I, I'm about travel equity. I want everyone to be able to afford to travel, you know, go to a place where they can learn about either their ancestry or in another culture and, and bring that home. Uh, and so we can continue to have, uh, create, you know, the kind of the feel of um, intercultural um, education, I think that we really need in the U.S. And we have, we have diversity here too, as I always will say, you know, so mm -hmm. that's another area, you know, that I think could be taken advantage of now during COVID. Thanks. Michael? Yeah. I would say somewhere along the same lines, which is to take advantage and to use it wisely. Mm. Um, because I think there's a way, well, one, we have to be kind of really judicious about how we travel now because of the global situation, uh, especially environmentally. Like we just, we can't be burning fuel like this anymore. Um, but the other thing is too, there's a way in which we're taught to kind of vacation where you go somewhere and this Americans are notorious for this, but like when Europeans show up to America, they do this too, where you go and you do all the fun stuff and you party and you have a good time. And like, that's a colonial mentality. You're showing up somewhere that's not your place and you're here to live like a king. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's us knowing what that's like. And like, I think in my case, having felt really offended sometimes when I hear folks when they show up because they don't think you hear the language, but you hear what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's mm -hmm. up to us that can think travel better, which means like, go and enjoy. Like if you go to Europe, if you go to Africa, wherever you at, eat the food, see everything there is to see and have it, but also really take the cultural experience mm -hmm. seriously and learn. Um, and one of the good things about, I think, Europe right now is there's so many black folks doing like 
history tours, mm-hmm. cultural experiences. Mm-hmm. We have a lot more access to that than we had mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, so like this is like being out of America got me more in touch with my blackness than being in America. Wow. Um, Mm-hmm. Because I could then see it in all these spaces and kind of have this global understanding of what was going on. So, like, that was something I always wanted to bring back home. Nice, nice. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to um, to really share your story and lend advice and think hard about your questions that I think our listeners are going to really benefit from what you have to say. So thank you again. Yeah, thank Thank you you. for inviting and having fun. Mm -hmm. No, it's a wonderful conversation. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette, and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davidsdeliciousdelights.com. davidsdeliciousdelights.com custom-made, personalized cakes, pies, cookies, and pastries made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com and use the coupon code BEINGTHEDOT for 20% off orders of $34.99 or more. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.